Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we're spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, to focus, and that we are walking by the Spirit. And that means that if we need to, we need to use 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we had this time to just come together to take time away from our busy schedules and the details of life to reflect upon that which has eternal value and significance. So often it's easy for us to become distracted by the details of life and not to realize that ultimately a life that's lived without a focus on eternal things is a life that is a waste. And we need to be spiritually prepared for whatever may come come in our life and especially for what you have planned for us as church-age believers when uh, you, the Lord comes in his kingdom and we are to rule and reign with him in the future. So, Father, we pray that you would use this time to challenge us, encourage us, and to get us out of our comfort zone in terms of our forward momentum in the spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you can see from the new slide that we have, the focus of First Peter is living in the light of eternity, living today in the light of eternity. And we'll see why that is, is important to understand this and how this focus derives from the text itself. But we're just starting off in this study in First Peter. We've been, uh, we started with an introduction last week over the first question that comes up. Whenever you begin the study of a book, it's helpful to just start with some basic information. Usually this is found in, you go to uh, New Testament introductions, New Testament surveys. This is the kind of information that uh, you usually glean from that. And we're spending a little more time on some aspects of this in First Peter today because they are somewhat uh, controversial, and we have to understand what these, what these issues are. We saw that there are several questions that anyone needs to address just as you start to study an epistle so that you begin to uh, at least build a framework for being able to uh, interpret, properly understand what the author is saying. And so part of it is understanding who the writer is. And we looked at that last time in terms of who wrote First Peter. And we'll see several times, numerous times, as we go through this epistle that, that Peter says things 
that would be unique to Peter because of the time that he spent with the Lord during the uh, incarnation, during his ministry on the earth. Second thing, which is what we're going to focus on tonight, is to answer the question, to whom was this epistle written? Now, that's not always that important. It's not always that significant. But I think in this case it is, and so we'll spend some time on that. And the third question also relates to it. From whence is it written? Where was Peter when he wrote this? What is the significance of that in terms of basically claims related to Peter as the, quote, first pope and uh, as the founder of the uh, Church of Rome that came later to be known as the Roman Catholic Church? Why was it written? What's the purpose? What was the occasion that gave rise to um, to, to uh, Peter's writing this epistle? When was it written? That too is important in terms of understanding perhaps some of the aspects of this epistle. And then finally, what are the key doctrines, themes, and applications? So last time we looked at that first question, who wrote Peter? I pointed out that there were two lines of evidence you usually look at. The first has to do with external evidence. That is, what did the early church say about the authorship of this epistle from any early documents that we have? Uh, and so we see that a number of the early church fathers from Polycarp, whose dates are from 70 to 156, and he was a disciple of the Apostle John, all the way through Theophilus at the end of the second century, you have a number of witnesses indicating that the writer of the uh, of First of Peter was indeed Peter. Then we also look at internal evidence. That's inter- evidence from within the Bible itself. We looked at the fact that this is the claim in the first verse, and the number of the statements that are made in within the epistle itself fit with the, with Peter, and also are related to events that we know uh, were true of Peter during the life of, uh, of the Lord. And so that helps us to understand uh, and to interpret different passages within within the epistle. I also looked at the uh, evidence from liberals, and when we talk about liberals in terms of theology, just to uh, make sure you understand these are not political liberals, although I think there are some. Ultimately, there are there are beliefs and presuppositions that shape both a liberal understanding of Scripture and uh, versus a conservative understanding and a liberal view of, of, of politics. Liberalism come, grew out of uh, the Enlightenment period. Early on, the, the idea of liberal had to do with a freeing from authority. And during the early part, uh, or during the Reformation, it was a freeing from the authority of, of the Roman Church and the authority of the Pope. But the Reformation itself, which occurred mostly in North and Western Europe, was not a freedom from the authority of God. It was a return to the uh, authority of God. But in the South especially and among uh, Roman Catholics, it was it was viewed a little differently. And with the Renaissance, there was a return to to early writings that were characteristic of Greece and Rome, as a, as a and the paganism that was embedded there, as opposed to a return to the original documents uh, of the early church. And I saw, pointed out that the basic presupposition of theological liberalism is an anti-supernaturalism. They didn't believe that there was a God, so uh, you couldn't prove there was a God. Reason is the ultimate arbiter of truth, and since you can't prove that there's a God, then God doesn't exist. And by definition, uh, 
he could not inspire an inerrant scripture, so that would mean that the human authors of scripture were just like any other human authors. They may have had elevated ideas in places, but they weren't any better than anybody else, so they made mistakes. Thus, they conclude that, um, and, and they, they rejected the claims of the New Testament that it was written during the first century, and they claimed that it was authored 150 to 300 years after the, the time of Christ, and thus it was based on, the New Testament was based on legend and an imposed theology. So the early church imposed this, this legendary view of Jesus upon the Gospels and upon the early church. And so they conclude that the testimony of the human authors of Scripture is basically irrelevant and by definition unreliable. So they reject the authority of Scripture. And this gives us a difficult time when we're communicating to people who are firmly embedded in this because as part of the way in which we reason to truth is that we can't compromise at the level of presuppositions. And this is something that is known as presuppositional apologetics. And since we're going to get into one of my favorite verses in 1 Peter 3.15, that we are to give an answer for the hope that is in us, we'll be taking time when we get there to understand the basic mechanics of how to think in terms of defending or your position or answering those who uh, want to know why you believe uh, the Scripture is true. We also looked at a summary of Peter's life. We'll spend a little more time on that as we go forward. So that's what we covered last time in terms of who wrote First Peter, that this is Peter uh, the Apostle, Peter the Galilean fisherman, Peter the brother of Andrew. And now tonight what I want to look at is this question, to whom was this epistle written? Now this is really an important topic, an important thing to think through The issue here is whether or not the audience was primarily Jewish or Gentile. Was Peter addressing Jewish believers primarily, or is he addressing a mixed group that was comprised mostly of Gentile uh, believers? And this will become significant as we work our way through certain things that are said, especially in the second chapter. There, now, as we look at this with that setup, we have to look at some of the, the two sides of this particular uh, argument. Uh, there are the vast majority of people who write on First Peter and who teach on First Peter teach that it was primarily a Gentile audience and that this is church-age believers who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In order to reach that conclusion, you really have to pervert the meaning of several words that are found in First Peter to describe, uh, to describe the recipients. And if we're going to be consistent in a literal grammatical historical interpretation, then we have to take words in terms of their normal usage and not read something into the text just because we don't necessarily under, understand things. So the Gentile view is by far the predominant view of history and the pre- predominant view of, uh, of commentators. And I differ with, with most of them. I've gone through and read, uh, read my way through probably uh, 30 different commentaries, just skim- skimming them 
uh, in in preparation for our study of First Peter, and I didn't read but one commenta- uh, commentary and one study Bible that correctly identified the recipients of First Peter as a Jewish audience. So, what are the reasons that are given for a Gentile audience? Well, the first one is that that in First Peter one fourteen, Peter says. Uh, referring to his, his, his audience, that they were formerly in ignorance. And so uh, the uh, claim is that, that um, uh, Peter would not ha- have used this term in reference to a group of Jewish uh, background believers because they would have been knowledgeable of the Torah. They would not have been uh, in ignorance. So their claim is Jews could not be said to be ignorance. But the problem with this is that the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.13, said, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And so it's very clear from Scripture that unbelief is related to ignorance. And so just because they may have knowledge of certain historical facts from the Old Testament would not mean they were free from being called ignorant. Another uh, argument is that Peter mentions empty tradition and that this could not describe the uh, uh, could not describe Jews but only Gentiles. He does this in First Peter one eighteen, referring to their aimless or empty manner of life uh, received by tradition from their fathers. And incidentally, the word tradition from your fathers is used by Paul also to refer to the rabbinical tradition that was dominant in the first century among the among the Pharisees. Ephesians four seventeen also describes the Gentiles who who walked in the futility of their mind. So, so the argument is that that uh, Peter would not have used this kind of language to describe to describe Jews, but it would have been more appropriate to describe uh, Gentiles. And the response to this is that in Mark seven thirteen, Jesus points out that the Pharisees had nullified the word of God because of their traditions. So, uh, mes- uh, Mishnaic. Pharisaism was definitely based upon a rejection of, of grace from the Old Testament that it could not produce perfect righteousness, it couldn't produce an assurance or certainty of salvation, and it couldn't produce eternal life. And so the concept of describing even a Jewish background believer's life before salvation as empty tradition or a futile way of life or empty manner of life is not inconsistent with what the Scripture portrays, certainly the, what the Apostle Paul says. A third argument to uh, support the view that Gentiles were the primary audience is that in t- chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, they're described as having been called out of darkness and that they were once not a people. And the argument is that neither of these phrases would apply to Jews. But the problem is you have a host of passages that counter this. There are numerous metaphors of darkness used in uh, Hebrew scriptures to depict unbelief. For example, in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, uh, we have uh, Isaiah writing, And he, that is God, saying, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return and be healed, which is quite an indictment of the, of the spiritual blindness of the Jews at the time of Isaiah. Jesus then quotes this in Matthew 13 after he's rejected by the Pharisees and accused of uh, performing his miracles in the power of Satan. Jesus quotes from that very prophecy in Isaiah indicating that the hearers at his time are dull and that they are blind in their spiritual darkness because they've rejected, uh, rejected the truth. Also, uh, unbelievers, even Old Testament Jews, were not the people of God. As Paul says in Romans 9, not all Israel was Israel. Only regenerate Jews in the Old Testament were true Israel, just as today only regenerate Jews are part of the remnant of Israel because they're still Jewish. They don't lose uh, their Jewishness when they get saved. If you're a Mexican and you believe in Jesus, you're still a Mexican afterwards. If you're German, you're still a German afterwards. If you're Jewish, you're still Jewish afterwards. It's not spiritually significant in the body of Christ, but you don't lose that ethnicity. You don't lose that background. You don't lose that culture that you grew up with. You're still a a Jewish background believer. So all, all unbelievers are born spiritually dead and in spiritual darkness. A fourth argument that's used to claim that this is primarily a Jewish audience is that Peter accused them of being formerly involved in idolatry in 1 Peter 4.3. In 1 Peter 4.3, he says that they uh, list a group of sins, lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, this is not inconsistent with other lists of sins in the New Testament that included idolatry. The claim is, though, that after 586, when when uh, Israel was defeated and destroyed by the Babylonians, that they did not return to idolatry. That was what their punishment was, was uh, partially for, was their idolatry, and they didn't go back to idolatry. But they didn't go back to that form of idolatry. When we look at Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear that the person who has rejected God is worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and that's idolatry. And passage like, like Colossians chapter 3 also emphasizes that uh, greed is idolatry in Colossians 3, 5, so that it's very clear that unbelievers are involved in idolatry. Every unbeliever is. It's not necessarily the worship of some uh, figure that's uh, carved out of wood or stone or made out of metal, but it refers to someone worshiping something other than the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their focal point of their of their thinking. And the fifth argument that's used to support the idea that that the audience was Gentile is that if Peter was addressing Jews, he would have used his Hebrew name. And his Hebrew name was Simon or Shimon, and his Aramaic name was Kephas. Uh, and, and, but instead, he uses his Greek name, um, Petros. So if the claim is that if Peter were addressing Jews, he would use his Hebrew name or Aramaic name. But he's addressing Jews in the diaspora. He's addressing Greek-speaking Jews. He's addressing a Greek-speaking audience. And many of the Jews who were in the diaspora 
didn't speak Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew. That's why the Septuagint had to be translated into uh, into Greek uh, 200 years before Jesus was because the, the Jews that were living in Alexandria and living in Egypt could no longer read or understand Hebrew or Aramaic, so they needed to have the Old Testament translated into their vernacular, which was uh, which was Greek. So the answer to that claim is that uh, it's a Greek-speaking audience living in the diaspora, and so Peter would have used his Greek name, and he's probably been ministering out in the diaspora for uh, 25 or 30 years, and he would have primarily been known by this time by his name Peter rather than by either Kephas or, uh, or uh, Simon. So... Those are the answers to the claim that it was written to a Gentile audience. But what are the arguments for a Jewish audience? And I think these are very strong because these are based on the use of the language, the terms that are used in uh, in First Peter. Uh, first of all, uh, it best fits the vocabulary of verse chapter one, verse one, and the context, the overall context of of First Peter. Peter uses. The word diaspora in the first verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims. That's, we'll look at that word too. That's another key word that's used to apply to Jews. It's, it's a word that's loaded, loaded with nuance if you're Jewish. They're pilgrims of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The word diaspora is a technical term that's used to describe the dispersion, we get our English word dispersion from diaspora. And it's used to describe the scattering, which is what the word means, the scattering of the Jews out of their historic homeland throughout all of the Gentile nations. And this word is used uh, twice in the New Testament, in John 7, verse 35, and also in James 1, 1. And in both of those passages, it's, it's clearly referring to the Jewish diaspora. It's not referring to Gentiles. It's referring to, to Jews. Also, this word is used in the Septuagint, in several places in the Septuagint, in Deuteronomy 28, 25, and in 30, verse 4, in Nehemiah 1, 9, in Isaiah 49, 6, Jeremiah 41, 17, Psalm 174.2, and in 2 Maccabees, remember Maccabees and Judith are in the Apocrypha, and that's part of the, included within the Septuagint. Second uh, Maccabees 127 and Judith 5.19 are all verses that use the Greek term diaspora, and they all refer to the scattering of the Jewish people. So you have its usage in the Septuagint, its usage in the New Testament, and then in pseudepigraphal uh, books. Pseudepigraphal, break it down in terms of its components. It's uh, writing, that's the, the graphe at the end, graphical. Pseudo means it's false. These, are the, uh, these, these aren't the apocrypha. Apocrypha were books that were included in some canon, not in others, and uh, covered the inter, really the intertestamental period. Pseudepigraphal works were works that were just false writings about uh, about. Uh, uh, claims that they were written by an apostle or claims that they were written by uh, somebody uh, who was a student of one of the apostles or someone and, and a claim that they were written by Solomon or others. And in two, two references 
In the pseudepigraphal literature, we have the use of diaspora, which also in these passages refers technically to the scattering of the Jews throughout the Gentile nations. So there's no evidence that this word is ever used of Christians being scattered among uh, among the various nations. It, there's, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. The other word that's used there is the word pilgrims, which is the word paradamos, which is translated aliens or sojourners. And this word paradamos, incidentally, is used in the Septuagint to translate a Greek, I mean, a Hebrew word, gur, which is used very frequently in the, in the, um, in the Pentateuch, especially in Genesis, to describe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't own any land. They were travelers. They were sojourners. That's usually the English word uh, that's used there. And so this is a word that is loaded with meaning of Jews who are not having, who do not have a permanent home and are just scattered. So I like the term resident alien uh, because they lived in these areas, but they were uh, they were not native to Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, Asia, or, or Bithynia, and they were uh, they were living there in, on a temporary basis, even though that might involve several ge- several generations. And this word is used uh, a couple of other times in the epistle. Twice in the epistle, uh, the recipients of the letter are, uh, are are then contrasted with Gentiles. Now, here's another. Uh, I think serious exegetical mistake that people make is they assume then that if these recipients are Christians, that the Gentiles must be a synonym for unbeliever. But Gentile is never used anywhere in the New Testament as a synonym for an unbeliever. The term Gentile always refers to non-Jews. They may be unbelieving non-Jews, but a Gentile is a non-Jew. And it's never the term is never used anywhere as a um, as a synonym for an un, unbeliever. And one place where you can see that definitely is in Romans chapter eleven, verses eleven through fourteen. So in First Peter two twelve, uh, Peter says, "Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles." He's not saying have your conduct honorable among unbelievers, though they may be. But he's talking to them as Jews who are living among the Gentiles. Uh, in First uh, Peter four three, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. And so he's not using this as a term that's synonymous with with uh, unbelievers. If he is, he's the only writer in the Bible that does. That just doesn't make sense. We have to let usage determine the meaning of words, and not read theology or read presuppositions into this. One of the problems that we have to understand is in the background of the, of, of the early church, you have anti, Christian anti-Semitism leaking into the church. So any, by the third century, anything that was still Jewish was frowned upon. And by the, by the third century, you have a pretty much a, a, a establishment of an anti the Jewish component in the uh, in the ge- predominantly Gentile church, and this colored things. In fact, the, the pressure from the Gentile community was that if you were a Jew, and there was still a large component, especially in the eastern part of the empire, there was a large component of Jews who were Christians. 
in 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 the church and so but but it it reached a point once uh Christianity was legalized under under Con, uh, Constantine that there was a pressure that if you were Jewish and you became a Christian that you had to get rid of everything in your life that even uh, reflected upon Jewish tradition or Jewish culture, and you had to change your name to a Gentile name. And the idea was you had to completely eradicate any evidence of your Jewishness, and this was the result of this uh, incipient anti-Semitism that colored the, the much of the uh, later or later years of the early church and really blossomed into a full-blown replacement theology and anti-Semitism by the time you got into the Middle Ages. So terminology, again, Gentile neighbor, uh, referring to Gentile, uh, their Gentile neighbors indicates that this word is contrasting them with being, being Jews. Fourth, we see that the concepts in 1 Peter 2.9 are not applicable to the church as a whole. They're really only applicable to a believing Jewish audience. Now, this is where we're going to get into some real uh, interesting hermeneutical issues. When Paul says to them, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this has been used out of context by a lot of replacement theologians to argue that, see, there's only one people of God, and those were, and that's the church. And so the, the, the Jews in the Old Testament were the church of the Old Testament, and, and uh, in the New Testament were the spiritual Israel. But these terms are are. Are, are not don't really fit. We are not a holy nation. The church is made up of numerous numerous nations, and when we look at the uh, <clears throat> nouns that are found here, uh, the noun for race, the noun for nation, and the noun for people, these are all singular nouns. They are not uh, plural nouns, and so they could not be describing the church as a whole, since the church consists of many races, nations. And peoples. So we're going to have to spend some time understanding this. In Romans 10, 19, uh, Paul even says that the church is not a nation. So these terms uh, apply more to those who are of the Jewish race. And so the argument is that the remnant of the Jews that are regenerate in the early church are the ones who, even though they are church-age believers and in the body of Christ, are finally fulfilling some of those unique aspects related to uh, the calling of Israel. Remember, we got into this in Acts, that, that one of the big problems in the early church was the Galatian problem. Remember the Galatian problem? Paul went to, went to the churches in southern Galatia, and he was followed by the Judaizers who said that if you really want to be saved, it's not just a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. You have to be circumcised and you have to come under the law if you're going to be saved. And and so there was that problem with all the, the, the Jews who were unbelievers who were hostile to Paul. And ever since then, a lot of Gentile Christians have had a problem with understanding the significance of the Jewishness for Jewish background believers. And as we get into um, uh, looking at, at that whole issue with circumcision, we saw that the problem wasn't circumcision per se, 
because Paul made, made it clear that Timothy had to be circumcised. And the issue was because he was still a Jew, an ethnic Jew under the Abrahamic covenant. That the problem with the Judaizers is they were saying you had to come under the Mosaic covenant in order to be saved or to be sanctified. And, and the Mosaic covenant also emphasized emphasize circumcision, but circumcision wasn't the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. So if you were, are, were and are an ethnic Jew and you become a Christian because of the Abrahamic covenant, you should still be, be uh, circumcised if you are a, a Jewish male. And that has nothing to do with salvation or spirituality. It just has to do with the the fact that you go back to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And so we have to draw those kinds of distinctions that even though you are Jewish in the body of Christ, you still have certain Jewish background uh, issues that are that apply to you that don't apply uh, to church-age believers. And we'll get into a lot of those details when we get there. And we'll spend a lot of time trying to understand a lot of what is going on in uh, Messianic Judaism and Hebrew Christianity to make sure we properly understand the backgrounds and the influences on various uh, various interpretations. A fifth argument is that um, ab- that that there's no salutation there's no salutation that's addressed to the church of or to the churches of. You go through many of the epistles, they're addressed to the church of Ephesus or to the churches of, but they're, they're, you don't have a mention of the church anywhere in First Peter, just like you don't have the mention of the church anywhere in James. And who is James addressed to? Those who are in the diaspora. Same thing. These are Hebrew epistles, like, like the writer of Hebrews. They're written to Jewish background believers dealing specifically with issues related to their Jewishness. Now, that's going to raise a lot of questions because it's going to be six or eight months before we get to 1 Peter 2. I don't want to hear your questions now. We'll get to them when we get to them. Okay, Galatians um, and Galatians 2, 7, and 8, this is another, another argument that, that Peter... Uh, would have been writing to Jewish background believers because Peter is the apostle to the circumcised. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Paul didn't just minister to Gentiles. He also ministered to to Jews. We saw that when we went through Acts. Peter obviously ministered to Gentiles because it was Peter who brought the gospel to the Gentiles in Cornelius' household and brought the Gentiles into the body of Christ back in Acts 10 and Acts 11. But his, his ministry, his sphere of ministry was to Jewish background believers, which to Jews and not to Gentiles. That was Paul's domain. So it wouldn't make sense that Peter would be writing his epistles to Gentiles, to Gentile believers, whereas Paul was primarily ministering to Gentile believers. Galatians 2, 7 and 8, especially verse 8, we read, uh, For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me, that's Paul, toward the Gentiles. And so we have to understand there was a division of labor that God established between Peter and Paul. So I already made the point there's no mention of the church or churches in the the salutation. 
And the seventh uh, reason we would say that it's written to a Jewish background audience is because the epistle is loaded with allusions to Old Testament scripture. It assumes a pretty thorough knowledge of Old Testament uh, background, Old Testament passages uh, as, as uh, Peter wrote to them. So it, this doesn't mean that Peter couldn't have written to some Gentiles, but he's writing to a group. We know that there was a large Jewish uh, community in all of these areas in what is now modern Turkey, and we'll look at the details related to that uh, when we get there. So we've looked at who wrote Peter. First Peter is written by Peter, the, the disciple, Peter the apostle. To whom was the epistle written? It was written to Jewish background believers that were in the diaspora in central, uh, central, what is now central Turkey. From whence was it written? Now, this is also uh, an important uh, issue, and it applies to our understanding of the audience for the epistle. In 1 Peter 5.13, there is a somewhat cryptic comment made by Peter and it, many people believe that this relates to either where he is ministered or where he is currently writing from. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. So there's a reference to Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, and a reference to Babylon. Now, there are three basic options that have been taken by commentators as to where this Babylon is. Now, this is, this is, again, an important issue in interpretation. We believe in a literal historical grammatical interpretation. We don't believe Israel in the Old Testament means the church. We don't believe the church in the New Testament refers to spiritual Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is a church. But then all of a sudden you find a whole host of even dispensational uh, pastors and theologians who say, well, when you read 1 Peter uh, 5.13, Babylon doesn't mean Babylon. Babylon means Rome. And you also find a number of dispensationalists who have taken Babylon in Revelation to refer to uh, Rome as well because uh, of a fear of persecution from Nero. I covered that extensively in, in our study of Revelation, that Babylon there means Babylon. There's no basis in Scripture to or in history that Babylon should be understood as anything other than literal Babylon. So the first solution that's offered to understand where Babylon was is, is one that is just a minor position, and that is that it refers to a Roman military base in Egypt that was founded by Babylonian refugees. The problem with that is twofold. First of all, this village was really a very small, insignificant area. It was relatively unknown, and it was not likely to have been visited by an apostle. Apostles went to large population centers in order to communicate the gospel. Second, there's absolutely no tradition, there's nothing in Scripture or in history that associates Peter with North Africa generally or Egypt specifically. So we can pretty much count out that particular uh, guess. The second view that is the most dominant view is that Babylon is a code word for Rome, that under the Neuronic persecution, Christians had to have a secret handshake, and they were all fearful of making any mention of Rome. We don't know why that would be. That doesn't make sense because others did mention Rome. 
But that's the argument, is that the Christians were afraid to let anybody know that they were in Rome or near Rome, so they used Babylon as a code word for, for Rome. That is the standard view. About 99% of commentators take it that way. How do they argue for that? Because they do have evidence. Well, one line of evidence is from the Sibylline Oracles and the Apocalypse of, ba- uh, of Baruch, which used Babylon as a code word for Rome. The trouble is, is that those are second century documents that are written long after the time of the apostles and long after the time of the New Testament. A second line of evidence, as I alluded to a minute ago, is the idea that, Paul, that John uses Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 as a code name for, for Rome. However, if you're consistent with a literal grammatical interpretation, Babylon has to be Babylon. A third view is that Peter used this figurative, used figurative language elsewhere in the, in his epistles. So this is probably what most people would think is a strong arm. See, he he uses figurative language over here. He uses a symbol over here. Therefore, this should be a symbol also. But just because these five things are referred to symbolically doesn't mean a sixth thing should be referred to symbolically. You're just, it's a leap in illogic to do that. So, Babylon must be understood everywhere uh, that it is used uh, literally. There's no clear evidence of anywhere in the Bible of the term being used uh, used figure, figuratively. A fourth argument is based on the view that Peter's latter years and his death were in Rome. Now, this really gets into a lot of the issues related to the claim that Peter's the first apostle and Peter was the one who founded the church in uh, the church in Rome. And so we're going to get into that in just a little bit. This view is Peter spent his latter years pastoring the church in Rome as the so-called first pope, and this was during the Neronian persecution. So Peter used these code words for Rome. Well, here's the problem. First of all, let me mention several. If Peter was in Rome for that length of time, Why did Paul go there in the first place? Why did Paul want to go there to teach, instruct, and encourage them based on what he said in Romans 1.11? Because Paul's pattern was to not build on someone else's foundation. He wanted to go where no one else had gone before, sort of like the Starship Enterprise. So if Peter were there and Peter was pastoring the church in Rome, there would be no need for Paul to ever go there. So why would why would uh, why do you think that Peter was there for a long period of time? Um, and Paul states that that he doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation in his epistle to the Romans in Romans fifteen twenty. If if Peter was already there, wasn't his apostolic ministry sufficient? Why would you need another apostle to come there? to back him up. Uh, Peter's ministry would have been sufficient. A third question we should ask is, why would Paul have written the largest theological and doctrinally foundational epistle to Rome if Peter was already there? Why would they need this great masterpiece of doctrine if they already had the apostle Peter to answer all their questions? Uh, a fourth question, if Peter was there, why didn't Paul give him a, a greeting in that long list of greetings in Romans chapter 16? But, but Paul doesn't even give a shout-out to Peter. Why? Well, the most obvious answer is Peter wasn't there. He said hi to everybody else that he knew. Why wouldn't he have said hello to Peter? 
If Peter was in another question, if Peter was in Rome, why didn't Paul mention him in the prison epistles or during his last epistle, which he wrote from Rome in A.D. 67? Why does Paul never mention Peter in, in the epistles that he wrote from Rome if Peter was supposed to have been there? Now, that, that's an argument from silence, but there are some arguments from silence that are pretty deafening. Another question, why would Peter the apostle to the circumcised be ministering in Rome anyway? That's not his sphere of influence. So why would he have spent the last eight or ten years of his ministry establishing a church in a, in a Gentile city? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't fit the biblical evidence. The reality is that evidence of Peter's ministry in Rome is only dated back to about 150 years after Peter was in Rome. There's no older evidence than the late 2nd century for Peter being in Rome. So we really don't have any evidence that he did other than that he was martyred there. So he was brought there near the end of his life, but he didn't spend a lengthy period of time ministering in, in, in Rome. It's also argued that because Peter's associated with Mark, as we see in this particular verse, and that the New Testament later, uh, the New Testament associates Mark with Rome in Colossians 4.10 and 2 Timothy 4.11, that, that therefore Peter must have been in Rome with Mark. But why could Mark have been with Peter in Babylon? That makes a lot more sense. So it's very likely that, uh, that Mark was in Babylon and was, uh, was helping Peter with his ministry there. Now, the third option is the one that I've mentioned already, and that is Babylon is literally Babylon. Just as Israel means Israel, Jerusalem means Jerusalem, the church means the church, Babylon means Babylon. And this, first of all, it fits a literal grammatical historical interpretation best. Second, all of the other geographical references in the epistle are taken to be literal. We don't try to assign some sort of spiritual uh, meaning to Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Pontus. We take those to be literal. So why? there's no evidence that any geographical location is anything other than literal. And, and third, other writers of Scripture had, uh, had no fear of using the term Rome literally. So none of these arguments really... Uh, for it not being literal, ba Babylon really, really wash. What's interesting, though, is at the time that Peter wrote, the largest Jewish community outside of Jerusalem is in Babylon. You have two great Talmuds. You have the Jerusalem Talmud and you have the Athens Talmud, right? No, you have the Babylonian Talmud. These are the two great Talmuds. Why those two places? Because that's where you had the largest Jewish community. How would you get a large Jewish community in Babylon? They were taken there in 586, and many of them did not return with uh, Zerubbabel or with Ezra or with Nehemiah. And so you still have had a very large uh, contingent in, um, in Babylon. And so Peter, as the apostle to the... Uh, to the circumcised, the apostle to the Jews would have gone to where there were large population, a uh, large population uh, of Jews, and so that's why he went there. So I think that when we understand that he's writing from Babylon, 
He's the apostle to the circumcised, and he uses language that is very distinctly related to the, the Jewish diaspora that we have to conclude that he's talking to Jewish background believers. So we'll, we'll come to understand the significance of those issues as we go through especially chapter 2. So that brings us to the fourth issue, which is why did Peter write? He writes to believing Jews that are scattered in these various provinces, and they don't have apostolic oversight. They don't have a shepherd. Remember it's, when we studied in Acts that when Paul went through, uh, went through uh, Turkey on his second, uh, second missionary journey, that the Holy Spirit prevented him from going into either Asia, which would have been the uh, westernmost province, or to Bithynia, or to any of the other province, because the Holy Spirit was taking Paul to, to go to Troas and to cross over to Europe. So um, Paul did not establish any churches there. We don't know who established these churches. We do know that there were Jews from uh, Pontus and Asia and Galatia and Bithynia who all came to uh, Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost is recorded in Acts chapter 2. And so all of these areas, uh, Cappadocia included, were represented by Jews. So these Jews would have gone back with the gospel after the day of Pentecost, and they would have been responsible for the conversion of numerous Jews in these regions as a result of what they had seen on the day of Pentecost, telling them uh, about Jesus as, as the Messiah. The people are undergoing suffering. Now, that's another issue that comes up in dating the apostle and figuring that out is because the liberals came along and said, well, the only persecution that, that this could really be comes later under, under Domitian or, or maybe, maybe later, but, but there were little regional persecutions and opposition to Christianity, especially among Jews. Think about what we studied in, in, uh, in Acts. Again and again and again, when Paul would take the gospel to places like like Philippi, or take the gospel to Thessalonica, take the gospel to uh, you know the first missionary journey, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, what happened with most of the Jews in the synagogues? They rebelled after they heard the gospel the first two or three times, and they would reject it, and they would persecute and chase after uh, Paul and Timothy. And so Peter is writing to a group of believers that are constantly under both covert, uh, covert adversity which mean, and covert persecution, which means they're just being ridiculed, they're being belittled, they're being ignored uh, by fellow Jews, and maybe even overt persecution where they are being uh, pursued and actively, uh, actively persecuted or, or tortured for their faith in Christ. So... Peter is writing to them to encourage them on the basis of our future destiny in Christ. We've, we will run into numerous words, hope, words related to inheritance. These are terms that focus on the end times and our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and that we need to keep our hope fixed on those end time rewards and the end game and our inheritance in order to make it through the present suffering. And he talks about the fact they shouldn't be surprised by the fiery trial that has come among them, but that they should 
uh, focus on hope. And that's exactly what Peter could do because Peter had seen the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had gone up there with James and John when Jesus revealed his glory, when uh, Moses and Elijah appeared with him, and he had heard the very sound, the very voice of God the Father identifying Jesus as, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So Peter had already glimpsed that end-time glory, and that's another word that we run into uh, quite a bit in this, in this epistle. So Peter is writing to strengthen these believers so that they can handle the adversity that they're facing now, and that's going to have great application for us because not only do we face personal crises and difficulties and adversities living in the devil's world, but I think over the course of the rest of our lives, we're going to realize that we're living in a, an environment that is becoming more and more hostile to biblical Christians. As we have been studying in Matthew 10, if, they, uh, if the, those who oppose Christ said that he got his power from Satan and they called him Beelzebul and that, he would be, uh, that what he was t- teaching and proclaiming was evil, they'll do the same thing for us. And if you go to some parts of this country, the most evil people in this world are evangelical Christians because we d- don't believe in homosexual marriage and because we don't believe in, in uh, abortion as a means of birth control and we believe in the death penalty and we believe in the rule of law, and we believe in absolutes of evil and good, and the absolutes of of, uh, the rule of law, all of these things make us evil in the sight of postmodern Americans. We're the enemy, and this is becoming more and more true. You can go to some places up in the northeast and on the west coast, and uh, we're horrible. They hate evangelical Christians. And this is becoming more and more obvious as, as, the, uh, as the years go by. And just because Texas isn't that way right now doesn't mean it will stay that way. Because remember, there's a lot of people who are coming to Texas right now from all of these other places, and they're bringing their garbage paganism with them. And so that is going to have a serious impact on, uh, on, on this state. So That's why Peter is writing, to encourage us, to give us strength in times of adversity. Now, when did he write? Well, I think he wrote, uh, he didn't write early. He didn't write early like James. He didn't write in the 40s. He didn't write in the 50s. He probably wrote in the early 60s. He he shows that he has some, uh, some knowledge of Paul's writings. There are a number of passages in 1 Peter that are parallel to Ephesians. Ephesians 1.3 and 1 Peter 1.3 focus on the blessedness of God. Praise be to God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Uh, passages like Ephesians 3, 5, and 10 are parallel to 1 Peter uh, 1.12. Uh, Ephesians 3.6 and 21 parallel to 1 Peter 4.11. Uh, Ephesians 3.8 parallel to First uh, Peter one eight, and so on. So there are these similarities indicating that Peter is aware of some of the later writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, so that means it was probably later. There also appears to be some, even though there's no mention of the church, there is a mention in First Peter five, 
that the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. See, there's another allusion to the fact that he was present at the crucifixion. Uh, In verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. Now, he doesn't use the word church, but he does use uh, terms that indicate there is some organization to this body of believers in this particular area. And so uh, that would put it a little bit later. So he probably wrote it uh, sometime around 63, maybe 64, uh, and and probably before uh, Nero turned uh, against the Christians with the burning of Rome and then uh, blaming that upon the Christians and beginning that that persecution. Now, the distinctives, the last thing I want to look at, oh, here's a chart, I forgot I had that. There's a chart with the comparisons between Ephesians and First Peter. I'll leave that up so you can write that down a little bit. Now, there are various distinctives in First Peter that indicate the theme of an epistle. See, that's one of the ways that we get to the themes of a message is looking at vocabulary. Now, someone asked me, mentioned last time, that uh, Dr. Ryrie and the Ryrie Study Bible and several other people have said, well, the theme has to do with with grace uh, because of verse 12 uh, where where Peter says, by, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. That's true. He's talking about grace. Grace runs all the way through the epistle. But the, the, the key idea that goes through the epistle is, is suffering. Peter uses the English word suffering in the New King James Version 17 times. And some of that reflects suffer the verb, and some of it reflects suffering the noun. If you look up in most uh, Bible introductions, I'll say that, the, that he uses the verb suffer 15 times, but he does more than that. He, does it, he uses the noun several times. He uses the verb several times. And in addition uh, to that, he also mentions uh, other aspects of adversity and suffering. In one six, he says, grieved by various trials. In one seven, tested by fire. In 2.19, enduring grief. Uh, two times he uses the word reviled. In uh, 2.23, when you're reviled, revile not. Re- being reviled is part of persecution and suffering. And so he uses the term reviled in 2.23, 3.9, and 3.16. Uh, he talks about judgment is supposed to begin at the house of God. That has to do with suffering and adversity. He says, uh, cast your cares upon the Lord. Well, cares are our adversity, our suffering, the difficulties that we're going through. So suffering is a major theme in this epistle. You can't say, well, this epistle is about X if X doesn't address the fact of suffering. So that has to be a major issue. How do you handle suffering? You handle suffering by fixing your attention on the glory that is to be revealed. Glory is mentioned 16 times, both the verb and the noun. Again, that indicates the solution, that we are able to live in the adversity today in light of the glory of of eternity. So that is another uh, important term to understand in terms of the message of the book. Uh, Third... Christ's own sufferings are mentioned six times in this epistle as the pattern that we should follow to handle our suffering. 
So that's the model. Six different times Christ's sufferings are mentioned. Fourth, Peter uses the term holy or to be sanctified, to be set apart six times, emphasizing that suffering is not a, an excuse, a rationale for complaining or griping or any other kind of sin, but uh, we should maintain a righteous conduct even in the midst of adversity and difficulty. Uh, enable, in, in order to enable us to make it through adversity, uh, Peter emphasizes what the believer possesses in salvation. Thus, he uses the term grace ten times. He uses the word hope five times. He uses the word faith five times. He uses the word salvation four times. And at least three of them have to do with uh, our our with phase three salvation, not justification and not the present spiritual life. Sixth, he uses the term submission five times in relation to authority, that we live in a world where often the authorities over us are unjust and unrighteous, but we are like Christ to submit to that authority. No one was more justified to rebel against an unjust authority than Jesus Christ. And yet he did not. He submitted to them and went to the cross without uttering a word. So it doesn't matter how unjust the authority over you might be. It never justifies being a rebel. That's the same principle David demonstrated in the Old Testament. Seventh, the letter makes a, a, a use of 34 imperative mood verbs in, in the Greek. It gives us mandates as to how to live. Again, uh, uh, eighth, it furnishes a classic statement on what Old Testament prophets understood in verses 10 to 11 in the first chapter of this salvation. And in context, that's the end that, that probably uh, assumes or uh, incorporates all three phases of salvation. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So uh, that's a classic statement. Uh, ninth point is that many statements about Christ are found in the letter, his incarnation in 120. He lived a sinless life in 119 and 222. Talks about his suffering and death in 224, his resurrection in 321 to 22, his ascension in 322, his present session at the right hand of God the Father in 322, and his future return in 17, 113, 413, 51, and 4. So you have a lot about Jesus Christ in this epistle. A tenth, it provides much information that's a reflection about Peter's personal time with the Lord during the time of the incarnation. So this supports the view that Peter wrote this epistle. Eleventh, um, the letter is a circular letter, which meant that it was written to be circulated among various churches and believers, congregations and believers in a particular uh, particular area. So this gives us a focus on uh, just some of the basic distinctives that are found in this epistle. So next time we'll start getting into it in the first chapter. Uh, no, well, not in the first chapter. We won't get into the details yet. Next time I'll do a flyover. We'll take, uh, we'll go up to about uh, 30,000 feet and fly over all five chapters so that we get a good orientation to what it is that Peter's saying. Remember when when. 
these epistles were written, they were read completely to the congregations. They were taken in one gulp. And so we're going to take it in one gulp and get a good view of everything that's there before we start dealing with the specifics as we exegete our way through uh, the first chapter. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at uh, First Peter to understand uh, these uh, various issues related to this epistle that we might have a greater understanding of the details that he addresses within the, uh, this epistle and that we might be strengthened and encouraged because uh, whether we're just dealing with personal crises and difficulties and adversity or whether we're dealing with something that is more overt towards uh, Christianity, uh, assaults from the culture around us, uh, Father, we know that the solution to these problems is always your word, that your grace is sufficient and your word is sufficient. And, Father, we pray that our faith might be strengthened, that no matter what the difficulties may be, what the adversity might be, that we might realize that the only thing that sustains us and strengthens us is your word, God the Holy Spirit, and the spiritual uh, strength that is given to us uh, through your word and through God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.